How many ever feel like your prayers, most of them don't get answered? Anybody? You know, it's hard to admit that, isn't it? Because you kind of look at your life and you think, well, it doesn't sound very Christian to say my prayers don't get answered, does it? And yet I think all of us experience those moments in our life where we go, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe I don't know the formula. The most common one is I must not have enough faith. Because if I had more faith, certainly I would be able to, uh, to see my prayers answered. You know, most of us are familiar with that Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Luke 11. But the prayer that is really Jesus' prayer to the Father is found in John chapter 17. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles there with me. We're going to look at this uh, text that we have before us. And I'll kind of walk you through what Jesus has to say on this subject of prayer. Because it's pretty, uh, pretty eye-opening. Listen to what he says. He says, I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about the disciples. How'd you like to have Jesus praying for you? He does. That's the great news. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you see what he's doing? He's doing this missional thing. He's saying, do you, have you ever stopped to realize that the entire population of planet Earth knows about Christ because of the disciples. And if we could trace our, our lineage back, our spiritual lineage back, we might trace some of our ancestry back to Paul and some we might trace back to John and, and maybe to Matthew. And God wants it, it to be like that. And so he says that they might believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you and Father are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So this whole thing about unity within the body of Christ, this whole idea of, of really being the, the hands and the feet and the life of Jesus is so that the world might believe. And the glory which you gave me, which I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. And he talks about this glory that the Father gives to him. And we're going to talk about what that means in a minute. Because there is the glory that he had in eternity before he took on human flesh, the eternal Son of God. And then there is this glory that we're going to talk about in human flesh that you and I share. He says in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Now when you hear the word perfect, you always kind of reject it and you say, wait a minute, I'm not perfect. It's actually a, a word that means to be made complete. And the idea is that we find completeness when we come into this relationship with Christ. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now think about that. You were loved by the Father in the same way, and he loves you with that same quality and that same level of commitment. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given to them. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known 
that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So a man by the name of George Mueller, he was a great man of prayer in the 1800s. He actually probably received more money and never asked than any other missionary on planet Earth. He ran an orphanage. But he was a great man of prayer. This is what he said on one occasion. He said, the great fault of the children of God is that they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Do you know that prayer has kind of a, has kind of a purifying effect? When you pray for the wrong thing, you can't keep praying for it too long because it goes on default. All of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, that's the wrong prayer. But when God puts something in your heart and you begin to pray with power and conviction, you should keep on praying until you receive the answer. Mueller had some friends. He had five friends, to be exact, that were not saved that he began to pray for. And when he began to pray for them, months into that, that first uh, encounter of prayer he had, one of his friends came to Christ. It wasn't until 10 years later that two more of his friends came to Christ. It was then 25 years later that the fourth came to Christ. It was 52 years later, following Mueller's funeral, that the fifth friend came to faith in Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes you kind of stop praying for people because you don't see the instant results. You think, well, does it really do any good to keep praying? I mean, their heart is so hard, and, and there's just so much going on in their life, and after all, I have prayed, and God's heard my prayers. Isn't that enough? And, you know, in Luke 11 and Luke 18, there's two examples of perseverance in prayer. And, uh, and what you're going to find out as you, as you start to look at those passages is that God says, hey, you know, when you start to knock, keep on knocking. When you start to seek, keep on seeking. Because what you're going to do is you're going to find. You're going to find when you do that. I want to talk to you about praying and praying into the future, first of all. That may seem like an odd phrase to you, to pray into the future, because isn't all prayer into the future? You know, most of our prayers, I believe, are prayers where we just talk about what we need right now. I have a crisis, and so I pray. I have a problem, so I pray. Someone's sick, and so I pray. But I want you to think about it like this. When you think about praying into the future, and when you pray into the future, you're praying about things that you want to see happen. Maybe you're praying, for example, if you have children, you're praying for the one they're going to marry. And you're pretty sure the one they're bringing home isn't him. <laughs> but in the process of praying into the future, you're putting a blanket of protection, of spiritual power over the situations you are in right now. But what you're saying is, I want to lay some groundwork into the future for my, in my prayers because in the book of Revelation, it talks about our prayers are stored up like in golden vials. And it says they are the prayers of the saints. Have you ever thought about your, your prayers being stored by God? And he's saying, you know, when that vial is full, when there's enough prayer uh, issued up for that, I'm going to answer that prayer. But we've become so accustomed to just kind of praying lightly and expecting God to do something. So when we look into this, you see, Jesus, what he did was he foresaw that faithful followers would be there to influence the world to believe the redemptive message of Christ. 
So he's giving them a kingdom assignment. He gave us a kingdom assignment. You may think, well, you know, my kingdom assignment isn't it just to kind of love Jesus and follow him. It is, but it's even more than that. Remember what he said? He said that, that they may believe the word of those whom I pray for. He reminds us that it's our responsibility, that we have a great destiny, but it's not our responsibility to find our great destiny. Have you ever heard of people say, well, I'm just trying to figure out what God wants for me? There's not one of us here that hasn't said that. Trying to figure out the will of God. Can I tell you the will of God is exactly the same for everybody in this room? That you might be conformed to the image of the invisible God, that you might be like Christ, but his plan for you might be different. We all have individual plans the way God works in our life. But you see, if we start with this idea, God's will for me is that I be Christ-like in all that I do. And then when I'm doing that, you know what happens? My eyes and my heart and my mind is open up to the things of God, and I see the things of God with greater clarity. So God shows me the great destiny. It is my job to, to discover some of that great assignment in the midst of this great destiny that he's, that he's given me. And so when you think about it, what, when, when God begins to work and gives this assignment, this assignment is different for each one of us in our spheres of influence, but they're battlefields for God's kingdom. You know, if, we could, if, the, if the spiritual world could be revealed to us right now, what would we see? I think what we would see in the midst of this world we live in right now, we would see principalities and powers that are contending for your heart and your mind every single day, and they're trying to distract you. Have you, ever, have you ever had a time where you're praying with someone, and all of a sudden your mind just zooms off, and you go, whoa, where did that come from? Satan is called the prince of the air. He's the one who is constantly trying to bring distractions. Sometimes your greatest distractions will be during the times of your greatest prayer. Because the enemy knows the power that there is when we come before God in the Spirit of God and we walk with Him. I love this, uh, this idea that when we pray into the future, we're opening doors that are not yet opened. When we pray into the future, we, we understand this scripture that's found in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8. Listen to what he says. I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Can you imagine? God puts before you an open door. What open door would you like to see from God right now? I mean, just take a moment and think about it. Write it down and say, I'd like to see God do this in my life. What would the open door look like? And as you begin to set it before you, say, God, would you open that door up? And if it's not your will, would you close that door? Because, God, I don't want to go anywhere that you don't want me to go. He goes on to say that for you have a little strength, but you have kept my word. You know, when we come to a place when we acknowledge we have little strength, but what we're going to do is we're going to keep the word of God, and it says, and you have not denied my name. You ever denied the name of God? You ever kind of been talking to someone, and all of a sudden uh, they're asking you about what do you believe and what you do, and, they, and then you say, well, you know, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, and they go, really, what does that mean? And you're, you're almost hesitant to get it out. You ever deny his, his name? You know, Jesus said something really kind of earth-shaking. He said this. He said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I don't really like that verse, do you? I mean, there are some verses, quite honestly, I don't put up on my refrigerator to memorize. That would be one of them. The other one I don't really like is, you shall be held accountable for every idle word you speak. How about that? You like that one? 
It's not a refrigerator verse either, is it? But yet it's Scripture. God put it in there for some reason, did he not? So when we think about it, when, when we say, God, I want you to put before me an open door that no one can shut, what we're saying is we're going to put hell on notice that God is on the move in our life. What happens if you live a normal Christian life, let's call it normal, acceptable Christian life, and you come to that time of facing God and he says, you know what? There's just no treasure for you in heaven. You had, great, you had a great life. You enjoyed everything you did. But there's no treasure for you in heaven. Oh, you're welcome in. But there's no treasure for you in heaven. In the words of that poet, the, you know, the, the saddest words of tongue or pen are what might have been. What might have been. And there is this, I, I believe, as we come closer and closer to the end of the, the age in which we find ourselves in, I think what we do is we, have, we should have a greater awareness and a greater accountability and a greater power to, to speak his name and to proclaim who he is and to make a difference in our world. Because if you live to be 80, 90, or 100 years old, or even more, but you have nothing for which to, to give him, no, no crown for which to throw at his feet, what is it all about? And I want to tell you, it's really not that hard to lay up treasures in heaven. Just speak his name. Be faithful with it. Jesus taught us this idea of praying into the future with the Lord's Prayer. Think how it goes. Thy kingdom come future. Thy will be done. And then he says something that takes us back. He says, as it is already done in heaven. In other words, the whole idea of prayer is to somehow bring this idea of God's eternity into our present daily life so that we experience it on an ongoing basis. Have you ever had people say, you know, when you do a miracle and you, you see a miracle happen and they go, oh, wow, that's really unusual. How does that happen? Maybe God wants things to be the norm and not the unusual in our life. Maybe it is because we're not trusting and walking with God enough. When we uh, pray into the future, here's what we do. We provide a blanket of protection over the present. You ever prayed a blanket of protection? Now, there's an interesting story. Guy Job, remember him? Who brought up uh, Job's name? Anybody remember? It wasn't Satan. It was God. Okay? And God said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth fearing God. And Satan says, Oh, does he, he doesn't fear you for nothing. He, he fears you because you take care of him, because you bless him. Remove the hedge of protection, and he will be like any other person on planet Earth. As it turned out, his wife was like every other person on planet Earth, and she said, curse God and die. And there were times where Job was probably undoubtedly so low, and yet, here's what he said, I know my Redeemer lives, and on the Earth one day will stand. You realize how revolutionary that was? He was crying out for a mediator, for a, a go-between, for an arbitrator in his life. I know my Redeemer is coming back. When you think about, uh, when you think about this message that, that Jesus gives us here through the prayer, we think about when we pray into the future, we're establishing God's presence 
in our life. You get a God awareness going on in your life. Just watch conversations wherever you go. Start talking about God and you'll see the countenance on people change. You'll see their attitude begin to change because all of a sudden God showed up somehow in that presence. I was over at a place the other day and the guy, he started just cussing up a blue streak. He was good. Really good. He could put a lot of words together in a phrase that I never quite heard. I mean, it's an art. Guy doesn't just wake up and be able to do that. He's got to have some training. And so we're talking. He goes, uh, so what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, adjective, you're kidding me. I said, no, quite honestly, I was quite impressed. I mean, that, that, I mean, there's a great string of, you know, yeah, I mean, you took it on and a whole paragraph out of the, you used that same word like five times. That was good. And he was so embarrassed. And I said, hey, you don't need to be embarrassed. You didn't offend me. I said, here's what the Bible says. Out of the heart flows the, uh, out of the mouth flows the abundance of the heart. I said, see, if, if your heart was filled with Jesus, you'd just be talking about Jesus. And I said, I really don't think you even meant what you were saying. I think it just was a habit. And he was, he was looking for some hope right then. <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I was looking for some hope, you know. And, uh, and uh, he was just glad. And I said, hey, you know what? They, here's the thing. God loves you regardless how well you cuss. <laughs> Is that not true? Would he prefer you not do that? Absolutely. But that's not, see, God's love for us is not conditional, is it? Romans 5 says, if he loved us when we were enemies, how much more does he love us as his sons and daughters? For we're justified by faith. Now, some of you might ask, you know, is there a correct way to pray? I mean, do we need to kneel? Do we need to hold our hands up? What, whatever. You know, in the Hebrew, there's a word yada. Yada is a word that, that means to thrust the hands up. It's where we get our name Judah. It means praise. And Jesus was a lion of the tribe of Judah. And when you put your hands up, whether you're comfortable with it or not, it's okay because you're saying, I want to acknowledge and praise. I have a little two-year-old grandson who's really super cute, all right? And his name is Cruz. And Cruz will see me, and he'll come around, and he'll go, Papa, Papa, and he'll put his hands up, and I'll slap him down. I'll say, you little charismatic, put your hands down. <laughs> I don't do that. What's he saying? Pick me up, hold me, love me, take care of me, Right? You know, see, sometimes when we do this before the Father, we're just saying, I need more than this. There's something emotional in me that's driving me. Have you ever noticed when nobody's home how you can pray out loud and it feels good? There's just something very natural because you say, I'm in the presence of God and no one's listening in. God has given us a great destiny. Listen to what it says in 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God? You realize that's an honor? God calls you a son. God calls you a daughter. And as we think about that, when attached, to, attached to that great destiny is a great assignment. And faithfulness, faithfulness on our part 
will accelerate the kingdom's presence on earth. Because people will be attracted to you and opportunities will come to you and you'll be amazed. Let me tell you a little story about what happened this past week. I'm still reeling from it, all right? We were asked to go down and be a part of a meeting at the uh, Orange County Jewish Federation. That in and of itself is, is huge. And we're talking, and they have a big expo in May. Uh, on May 20th, they have somewhere between eight and 10,000 people that show up at that expo. And there were a number of us in this meeting uh, uh, from here from Influence, and, and we were talking. They said, well, we'd really like you to be involved in this. And I'm, and I'm just, you know me, I'm just a little bit, I joke a little bit every once in a while. So I just said, well, you know what would really be cool is maybe uh, me and a rabbi could start going around the synagogues and kind of doing a show thing. And the lady goes, that's a wonderful idea. I know the perfect rabbi. And she was serious. And when she sent out the minutes from the meeting, it was in there. And then, and then they said they were going to talk about this, uh, you know, the different things, and they said, well, would you and Tammy be willing to kind of be some media spokesman and kind of build this bridge between Jews and non-Jewish community kind of a thing? And I said, yeah, we'd be glad to do that, and we talked about different things, and they said, well, what else do you have? What are the other ideas you have? And I said, well, we got this band, L.A. God Music, and oh, would they come play? And I said, well, they're Christian. I said, I guess they could work up a couple of Jewish jingles. <laughs> She said, that would be great. That would be great. We want, the, we want the Christian band to come too. They said, now, can you come back next week for a brainstorming session? Maybe bring some more Gentiles with you. So we're going back Wednesday with more Gentiles. Now, I look at stuff like that, and I go, that doesn't make any sense. Makes no sense. Unless God is just opening a door because of a faithfulness in one area. You know, I, I, I was talking to somebody on the phone this week, and uh, I think it was just Saturday night, and I, I was telling the story, and, and, and he said, well, that doesn't surprise me. And I go, what do you mean it doesn't surprise you? Well, do you, don't you realize for most of your Christian life, if not all of it, you always go up to a Jewish rabbi or someone, and you will bless them in the name of God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And I realized that was praying into the future. There's a force of favor that accelerates the kingdom of God. When God gets involved, I love the story over there in Exodus chapter 12, that these plagues have come upon Israel, upon Egypt. Remember that? Moses goes in and he says, Pharaoh, it's going to get bad and it's going to get worse. And by the time they get to the last one, it says over there in chapter 12 and in verse 35 and 36, they said that they, they, they went in and they plundered the homes of the Egyptians of their gold and their silver. They said, here, take the gold, take the silver, get out of town. We're tired of you. No more plagues. What were they thinking? What were they thinking, giving up all their gold and their silver to these slaves? They came to their senses, I guess, because by the time you get over the Red Sea, guess what? They're in hot pursuit. Moses is sat there. The people are crying. They're whining, you know, poor us. Moses starts to cry and says, poor me. And God says, well, tell the people to go forward. What are you standing on the bank for? He had to take the step of faith to cross the Red Sea. Gets over there in the wilderness, and God says, I got a plan for you guys. It's called a tabernacle. 
And guess what? You're going to need a bunch of gold and a bunch of silver. Oh, you just happen to have it. You plundered the Egyptians. You see, God always provides before you have a problem. You think it's the opposite. You think you have a problem, then you go beg God for something. It's not that way at all. When you pray into the future, the force of favor, that, that what it happens is it overcomes the realm of resistance that's in our world. Let me show you a second thought. Transforming the world. When Jesus was praying, he was talking about transforming the world altogether. The glory that, that he refers to here is the glory that Christ had in his incarnation. Now, if you don't know what that word means, that means fleshment. You see, God became flesh. He dwelt among us. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. And there was a glory that he had. He would walk down a road, he would look at a seasoned fisherman, and he would say, come follow me, and guess what he did? He went and followed him. There was a glory that he had. It was the miracle of God dwelling in man. Can I tell you about a miracle that is right here in your midst, and that is that if you know Christ, God is dwelling in flesh, in your flesh, in you, men and women and children? God is in you. Oh, it's not the same. You're not God. But God has chosen to take up residence in you as God of very God. And when you walk in faithfulness with God, guess what? The, that the person of God comes out. People encounter not you as a Christian. They encounter the God in you. And that's what he talks about, the glory. I share that glory with you. Here's what Paul said in the Corinthian letter. He said, we with unveiled faces are beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. And we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see, what happens in your life as you walk with God, you go from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. You may not be aware of it. You may look back and go, well, I'm more like Christ today than I was a year ago. But, you know, you were making a change little by little every single day. The glory that Christ refers to is the treasure that you have in earthen vessels. You carry about in your body Jesus Christ. I asked a guy one time, I said, would you ever take spray paint and write it on the spray, you know, stuff on the side of the, the church building? He goes, no, I wouldn't do that. I said, would you ever take this temple and do something like that to it, though? This is what counts. You see, when you start to walk in his presence, you have a heightened awareness of what God is all about. Now, if you think about it, if you go back to that story of the Egyptians there, you know, was all that gold under the control of Satan and under the Egyptians? No. It was just being stewarded by them until God had a need. And God said, it's time to release that gold and that silver because I'm ready to build the tabernacle. The Jews didn't need it when they're slaves in Egypt. They needed it only when they got ready to build the tabernacle. And then God began to release the gold, release the silver. Because they had walked by faith, they had crossed the Red Sea. You see, everywhere you go, you're going to have a God awareness in people's life if you walk with him. 
I love this scripture in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. Listen to it. It says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but is now been revealed to his saints. That Greek word mysterion is a word that means something hidden but not revealed until the right time. It's not like something eerie and weird. God has a mystery. You know there are mysteries that are going to unfold. God has uh, many mysteries that he speaks about in Scripture. And one of them is this mystery of Christ in you. Listen to what it says. But now has been revealed to the saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory and the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know what hope is in the Bible? Confident assurance that which God has promised God will provide. Isaiah said this. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He looked ahead into the life of the the coming Messiah. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He talked about captives and prisoners. Can you relate to that? Have you ever been a captive to something? Have you ever been imprisoned to lies and deception by the enemy? You believe a lie about yourself. You know, I can't tell you how many, how many people over my ministry, the course of my ministry, uh, teenagers who've come to me with a lie and deception they believe, and it ends up sometimes in cuttings, and sometimes it ends up in drugs, and sometimes it ends up in suicide. They were held captive. Others are prisoners. You see, some are captives, but others are prisoners who've been found guilty, judged, and imprisoned. And they're being held in the same way, and it says the Spirit of God has come to to call us to preach the good tidings. That's what he's called you and I to do. I get asked this question all the time by, by people who are skeptics and people who are atheists. They say, what is truth? John 17, 17, you want the definition of truth? It's right there. Thy word is truth. You see, there has to be something that's unchangeable and absolute. Truth can't be relative. Truth can't be what you think it is. It can't be what I think it is. You ever heard people say, well, we're just going to speak the truth in love? And they think that means that I can tell you how I feel about you. The truth is the truth. It's God's word. He's not talking about your opinion. He's talking about you put the Word of God with love together and you can say anything to anybody on those two conditions. I used to have a mustache. Big, burly mustache. Much nicer mustache than yours, sir. Yeah. And your, yours just needs a little work, too. But I had a big mustache. Big, handsome mustache. And I was pastoring in the South and this lady came up to me and she said, your mustache makes me stumble. I think you should cut it off. I guess she didn't think a pastor should have a mustache. And I, I thought of a number of things I could say to her. And I said, oh, you mean my mustache makes you stumble? You mean it to sin? You sinned. Oh, no, I didn't sin. Well, that's what that verse means. You mean you don't like my mustache? She said, yeah, that's what I mean. I said, well, I don't think you look very good without one. Oh, wait a minute, you do have one. I'm sorry. No, I didn't say that. Truth is not dependent on my perception of truth. 
See, God is unchanging. I am the Lord, that is my name, I change not. He doesn't change. He doesn't have an opinion tomorrow that's different than today or yesterday. So his truth stands apart, is totally unique. God in Christ revealed this. He said, I am the way, you know what the next one is? And I am the truth. And I am the life, and no man comes of Father but by me. He's, he claimed to be absolute truth incarnate on earth. There was a time in America, and it still exists in some quarters, where a man's word is his bond. A man tells you something, and he does what he tells you he will do. Or great deals were sealed with a handshake. Can I tell you that God's word is his bond? My, my word will not return void. It will accomplish all that it is intended. The word of the Lord is pure, like, like gold refined seven times in a furnace of fire. His word is true. It was J. Oswald Sanders who said this, Faith grows with being occupied with who God is and what God has said. Who God is. What's your view of If you have a low view of God then life is not going to make a lot of sense. You have to have a high view of God. And then listen, what does God say? What does God say? Third, I want you to see the living in the glory. Look what he says. He says, uh, I desire that they also whom you have gave me may with me wherever I am that they may behold my glory. In Revelation chapter 5, there's a scripture. You might want to turn there and see what it says. The nice thing about Revelation, it's easy to find, amen? Two books in the Bible we can find, Revelation and Genesis. Everything else in between is just up for grabs, amen? There's those little books like Micah, Micah. How about 3 John? The nice thing about 3 John is you can pick any chapter you want and it, you're, you're good. There's only one chapter in 3 John, all right? Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, listen to what it says here. Now when he had taken down the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp of golden bowls full of incense, which are, there it is, the prayers of the saints. Every prayer you have ever prayed is stored in heaven. And listen to what they said. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open the seals. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, out of every people and nation. You have made us to be, look at this, kings and priests to our God. Do you know you're a king or a priest to God? You're royalty? See, in eternity, it's not about being a servant. It's about a position of royalty within the family. You know that everything that you're going through today that's tough, everything you're going through that challenges you, do you know that God is shaping you and conforming you to get you ready for your eternal destiny as a king and a priest before God? You're in training for your destiny. Look what it says in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor 
And guess what? It says every living creature on earth and in heaven and under the earth fell down and they worshipped him. Have you worshipped him lately? Have you fallen down and just worshipped him to make him worthy in your life? To acknowledge who he is. See, Jesus gazes down through the corridor of time and eternity. And when he does, he sees you and he sees me. When he gazes down that corridor, there is, a, there is revealed an unshielded glory. The glory which he had with the Father before the world was made. There is a theological term in the Latin that goes like this. It's, it's visio dia. It means the vision of God. The idea that you could actually see God one day in the person of the glorified Christ is what makes heaven heaven. Without that, without that divine glory, that divine vision, heaven is simply an empty place. And the reason that earth has such tough times is we struggle to find the glory of God, the vision of God. But guess what it says? It says that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us and in us. You see, it's contrast that heightens the awareness, isn't it? When you see things in contrast, you go, wow, that is so different. I remember the first time that we flew into New York and we were going down the, the, the uh, uh, concourse there in the airport, and it seemed like I was the only guy with blonde hair. And I felt like everyone was looking at me, like, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm from California. What's the problem? Right? It was a contrast that made the difference. When I was in seminary, I, I taught at a, at a seminary that was started back in the 30s, and it was originally started for all African-American students. And I was the professor. And I was really white. And I loved it. I mean, I loved being there. I just loved the culture, and I loved it. And they, they, they said I was black on the inside. And one of my favorite preachers, if you know me very well, was a, was a guy named S.M. Lockridge. And he had this sermon that he used to preach called The Lordship of Christ. And he went like this. He said, the Lordship is based on his ownership. Well, he did not have to put a patent on the songs the birds sing, for he owns them. He did not have to put a laundry mark on the cattle on a thousand hills, for he owns them. His Lordship is based on his ownership. Oh, all through the ages, men have been trying to reject him and ignore him. They tried to destroy him by a strong wind, but the tempest just laid down his feet and licked his hand. They tried to destroy him by fire, but he refused to burn. Tried to destroy him by a strong fire. Oh, refused to burn. Tried to destroy him by a field of empire, but the empire laid down their sword. Oh, I'm telling you, he's like, honey to the bee. He like oats to the horse. His lordship is based on his ownership. Gosh, I wish I was black. <laughs> the love relationship between the father and the son is a love relationship between that the father has with you and I. 
There's a scripture in Zechariah, it's Zechariah 9. Just write this reference down. This is an amazing scripture. God gave it to me the other day, and I just read it, and I thought, this is fantastic. He says, return to the stronghold. He's talking about God. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. You ever been a prisoner of hope? Think about that. I am held captive by hope. And hope does not disappoint us because it has been poured out. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given. And then he goes on to say, even I will declare that I will restore double. A prisoner of hope. I may get a tattoo. Prisoner of hope. I've been tempted lately. Think I'm kidding, don't you? I have one, but I can't show it to you. <laughs> Just kidding. Everybody's going, I wonder where it is. I wonder what it says. It says the Bible. Um, if you're a prisoner of hope, here's what it says to do. Return to the stronghold. Go back to God. He tells us, be a prisoner of hope. See, some people are prisoners of despair and discouragement. And all day long you think about despair and discouragement and what's going wrong in your life or what's going on in the world or what's going on in your relationships. Give it up. Cast it off. Be a prisoner of hope. And know that restoration is coming twofold. You see, God can restore all the years that the locusts have eaten in your life. God can do in one second what you've been trying to do in ten years. Just turn it over and release it to him. I know some of you are texting in, and I've responded to a lot of questions today, by the way. This last one is, is this working? Absolutely. <laughs> here's some, here's one, another genius uh, sent in. How much wood would a woodchuck chuck? <laughs> more here, but some guy here just offered me his new Cadillac. I don't know what that means. Oh, that wasn't in there. Um, John 14, 15. Jesus says this. He said, uh, I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's with you now. See, this is before Pentecost. He's with you now, but he will be in you. In you. He will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have spoken unto you. You know what the Holy Spirit does on the inside? Not only does he comfort, not only is he our advocate, he also does some interior decorating. Because he wants to get inside of you and he wants to change stuff from the inside out. See, Christianity is not about conforming on the outside, it's about being changed on the inside. It's about the life of God becomes so dominant inside of you, it presses itself out everywhere in your life. And you become a vessel of honor unto the Lord. Listen to this quote from Tozer. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come a further loss of religious awe. When you lose sight of the majestic God, you lose sight of awe and wonder and a consciousness of the divine presence. 
We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adorning silence. A dramatic pause like the one I just gave you is a speech technique. You stop and you let people think for a moment. Have you had a dramatic pause before God lately? Let me tell you some things about, about what Jesus was saying. Here's the first one. Your influence in your life is transformational. You can change lives. I don't care who you are. I don't care how little you know about Scripture. All you have to do is speak His name. You can change lives. It's transformational. Also, you, you, you can surround yourself with God's glory. You can live in the presence of the glory of God. We know that from based on what we read there in verse 26, that love begins on the inside. If you say you love someone and you mean it, it's coming from your heart, right? If you say you like someone, it's probably coming from your mind. But if you love someone, it's coming from the heart. When God says, I love you, it's coming from his heart. I want you right now, each one of us, just to bow our heads, and I want you to say something out loud. You're, I'm asking you to bow your heads so you don't have to worry about anybody knowing who's saying what. I just want you, with a voice that's loud enough that you can hear it, and maybe your neighbor can hear it, I just want you to say, I love you, God. Just say it together. I love you, God. That's the easy one. I want you to say this next. God, you love me. Unconditionally. God, you love me. Unconditionally. I'm going to ask you to let God begin to just stir in your heart. God begin to do something in your heart. Where you just really realize that this prayer that Jesus offered up before the Father, He offered up for you. It was all about you. It was all about that love relationship He wants to have with you. Father, as we come before you in this moment of prayer, and as we prepare our hearts to just sing your praises and worship you, God, I ask you, Father, to speak to us. Speak kind words and loving words and encouraging words, challenging words, because, God, you've given every one of us a kingdom assignment to live our life in a way that glorifies you, to be made whole, to be full in the power of God. And we give you glory and we give you honor, Jesus. In your name.